If you have a little cell phone where you keep your calendar or you have something, write in September 9th at 6.30. This is really going to be a big deal. He's a phenomenal speaker. And, and like he said, a lot of times people put uh, religion, Christianity up into this realm of kind of ideas and it's okay for you. He's saying, no. This is reality. This is the true way to look at things. This is truth. We're going to be talking a lot about that uh, today, this, this truth. Um, what is right? What is the right way to preview things? Um, previously, Jesus has said to, um, to uh, Pilate, he said, I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. He's talking about himself. And Pilate's famous statement was, what is truth? Well, this is a couple hundred years, a couple thousand years ago. Uh, did they really understand? Was Pilate really trying to engage us? I, I don't understand what's going on. Well, I tell you, this, this truth is essential in what Christianity is putting forth and in our passage today. The verse right in the middle really starts wrestling with this idea of truth. John, who's writing this, says, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. So he's got true and truth all in there. So this means something. He wants to communicate this is what is right. This is reality. It's not some story, some religious philosophy that doesn't pertain to anything else. Well, we have John writing about truth, but previously we have Pilate asking, what is truth? What did they understand at the time? Well, hundreds of years before that, you had Plato writing and wrestling with this idea of truth. And Plato, among his many writings, puts forth this definition that kind of we build on. But he says, what is true? That speech which says things as they are, reality, is true. And that which says them as they are not is false. Or he might have added fake news. He, he didn't put that in there. Um, but so things as they are. So he's wrestling here with truth. How do we understand truth? And I have to believe that John and Pilate are familiar with Plato's writing and are responding to that. Well, over 100 years ago, you have Bertrand Russell wrestling again with truth. Now, this Bertrand Russell is not a follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, he wrote on why he isn't a believer in Christianity, but he is wrestling with truth. How do we know things? And he writes, thus, a belief is true when there is a corresponding fact, and that it is false when there is no corresponding fact. It will be seen, catch this right now in our day and age, it will be seen that minds do not create truth or falsehood. They create beliefs. But when once the beliefs are created, the mind cannot make them true or false. What makes a belief true is a fact. And this fact does not, except in exceptional cases, in any way involve the mind of the person who has that belief. He's wrestling with clarity. How do we know what we know? How can we believe that? How can we trust that? And again, he's uh, not a, a Christian trying to put forth Christianity. He's, how do we know? And from this, 
probably developed a little bit earlier, but we get our correspondence theory of truth. Does it correspond to fact? What we know, what we can agree on is fact. Bad news, most Americans today don't believe that you can know truth. That there is no, they believe there is no absolute truth on most every area. But I do. And you do. And I believe people making that attack also believe that there is truth that can be known. But truth is under attack today. Um, we can see there's this postmodern thought. Modernism said through thinking and man we can fix everything. And postmodern says, well, we can't fix everything. And as a matter of fact, and are trying to fix things through words with people oppressing others. And we really can't know what is right and good. And things just get fuzzy. And we really can't trust our words. So let's just stay back from this knowledge thing. Let's just ask lots of questions. We can't know truth. And you're kind of arrogant if you say you do know truth. And the second thing, uh, truth under attack, find your own truth and follow it. Be true to yourself. This comes out pretty strong in just about every Disney movie you can find. Right? Be true to yourself. Run with it. And you put some great songs and some great characters and we all buy right into it. Yes, just... Be true. Wait a second. Bertrand Russell, a very smart guy over a hundred years ago, wrote that what we think in our minds isn't truth. Does it relate to a corresponding fact? Can it be proven? And today we are often just get lazy with this. We say things like truth is meaningless. If we can't really know, if there is no absolute truth, why even try to wrestle through it? Let's just live our lives. This truth is meaningless. But I am putting forward today that we can know truth. And by saying that, some people think, well, that's kind of arrogant of you. But let me, let me share what I am not saying. I am not saying that we can figure everything out. No, we are limited in a, in a good number of areas. So I'm not saying we can know everything. I'm not saying there are no gray areas. There are. Sometimes when we're younger, we think everything's black and white. Sometimes when we're older, we think everything's black and white. Um, but a lot of us say, now there's gray areas. Where are they? But we can wrestle. We can use this correspondence theory of truth and interact and read. We can know more than we know. And that uh, corresponds to the third point here. I'm not saying that we can know God completely. God is infinite. We are finite. We can know God. We can know God more than we do. He's given up his word. We can read that. We can pray, interact with him. But there's always going to be part of God that we'll never completely understand. I'm okay with that. So I'm not saying we can get all this figured out. I am saying that truth matters. This passage that we're looking at today, this book of John, this church stands for what is, we believe is the truth. And as Greg Kokel said, and we'll explain on September 9th, is the story of reality. John, in his book, we've been walking through it for a while, mentions true or truth 45 times. 
This isn't something he's just tossing out there. Well, this is true for you or for me. And so let's walk through it. No, he said, this is absolute truth. It matters. Jesus even makes a statement in the book of John. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This statement has major ramifications to how many people through their philosophies and religions see life. Jesus saying, I am the truth. How we respond to that makes all the difference in the world. Now, people say to me, I'll try to engage them, talk about Christianity and say, well, Kevin, there is no absolute truth. Well, how do we engage somebody like that? Pretty easy. You scratch your head and say, you just made a self-refuting statement. Right? They just made an absolute truth statement by saying, there is no absolute truth. So if there is no absolute truth, I have no reason to believe what they're saying is true. So it's, uh, sometimes we don't really understand how to engage people. They are saying there is truth and you can't know it or there is no truth, but that's still an absolute statement. So people are wrestling. How can we know or maybe we can't know? But if, they can't, if you can't make an absolute statement, then they can't either. I read a story. I wish I could tell you where it was from, but there was a student in college taking a philosophy class and they were... He was wrestling with some stuff he was reading. He raised his hand in class and said, Professor, does truth matter? Or why does truth matter? Does it even make a difference? And the professor said, well, do you want the true answer or do you want the false answer? What was he saying? It did matter to that student. He can try to be a skeptic, but at some point it matters. And I'll share it with you a little more. Actually, right now. How we know is because truth isn't just an idea sitting out there that has a corresponding fact. So, okay, we agree with that. But it gets our emotions aroused. And I'm going to push your buttons a little bit, but that's okay. This first one, a little extreme, but Brussels sprouts are delicious. (laughs) Of course not. We all laugh. We know in the Garden of Eden when there was no sin, there was fruits and everything, there were no Brussels sprouts. Once they sinned and the the weeds came up, Brussels sprouts came up. So now we have sin in a vegetable. And we know it's not very good, right? Well, you know, probably you've got about half the people saying, oh, I love Brussels sprouts. They're so good and healthy. And other people saying Brussels sprouts should not be allowed anywhere near food. They smell and taste horrible. Well, maybe a silly example, but we have difference of opinion. And you know what? I have some friends who really do like Brussels sprouts, and they can still be my friends. Uh, just not very deeply, but... Okay, now here's another one. You like the Brussels sprout? What? How about this statement? There was collusion with Russia in the recent elections. Ooh, Kevin just dropped the Trump bomb right in church. Okay, now, does truth matter in this? Absolutely, our freedom's involved, but we got half the people in here saying, man, there was clear, there was collusion, this man should be impeached. And we got half the people saying, there was no collusion, this is a witch hunt, let him go and run the country. We have differences of opinion, but we all want to know the truth. What really happened? And we don't know. We start getting aroused because we know that our freedoms are at stake. 
All right, here's another one. ISIS is weeding out the weak to make the world a better planet. Probably not have much of a debate on that in here, would we? We'd say, no, they're killing, they're raping, they're doing horrible things. This is absolutely false. Ah, but is it? How do we engage people that say, well, there really isn't a, a truth, right? Then if they say they like Brussels sprouts, I can be okay with that. That's their opinion because there really isn't a, an absolute truth. What if they say ISIS is okay because it's clear in their mind? We would be clear in the minds of ISIS that they think they are doing the right thing. If there is no absolute truth, your like and dislike of my examples, Brussels sprouts, collusion with Russia, ISIS, your likes and dislikes are simply your opinions. Why should I care about your opinions? You know what? I'll tell you, I don't care about your opinions on Brussels sprouts. I really don't even want to talk about it. What are the other issues? I do want to talk about them. They do matter. There is truth. And there is right and wrong. And when somebody tells me there's no absolute truth, they can't tell me that ISIS is wrong. It's just their opinion. And I just let it go. John reported in this book what he saw. And it mattered. And the truth matters to each and every one of us. Now let me set the stage a little bit for our passage this morning. John 19, 31 through 42. Three men are being crucified. Now, I can use that word crucified. Okay, I get in the story. No, three men are being horrifically tortured. They have been nailed up on a cross. They've gone through great suffering. Jesus, at least, likely the others, have been flogged, whipped 39 times, their flesh broken open. Likely their insides are being torn open. Might have some intestines showing. They're on the cross. They're holding themselves, pushing up on their feet that have been nailed there. Uh, they've likely let loose of all of uh, what's inside them. It is graphic. It is gross. This is a rated R sermon. So when we say three men are being crucified, this is a, a, a horrible scene that's happening. And the men are in pain this whole time as uh, just their body fluids and they're bleeding and they're in pain. And what they are calling out, I don't really know. But at this point, as we learned last week, at this point in the passage, Jesus has just said, it is finished. And he has, he's died. He's no longer with us. That's the scene we're looking at. And we're also looking at a bunch of Jews who wanted Jesus crucified, but they also want him off the cross soon because at sundown starts the Sabbath, the Sabbath for the Passover, and they don't want a body on a cross during their special holy day. So now we can look at the passage. We're going to look through the first 31 through 37 first. But here it is. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that, that might be taken, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. They broke their legs. 
This wasn't a little something where he came up and tapped and their legs broke and then they buckled and then they couldn't breathe anymore and they died. This is a horrific process of them beating their legs and their knees over a time period till it broke and they, their legs broke and they couldn't breathe anymore. So they went through that process with the first two who were being crucified and they got to Jesus and they said, oh, he's already dead. We don't have to go through that, that beating, that long process. But they took a sword and they pierced his side. And out came blood and water. He who saw it, we went through this verse before, has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. One of the first things I want you to know from this passage, it's in your little outline, that John's reporting the truth. He is just reporting what he has seen. He wrote, I have seen this. I am telling you what's going on. It's very likely John had no idea what was going on when Jesus was stabbed in the side and blood and water came out from his heart. It's very likely for the last, uh, for hundreds of years after that, that people didn't know what was going on. What happened here? John wrote down, can we trust John? He wrote that water came out with blood. That doesn't make any sense. Well, now we can medically say that it does make some sense because of the torture, because of the long period of time they've been going through excruciating pain. Um, there's been a prolonged rapid heartbeat and often results in, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, hypovolemic shock. And that can cause fluid to gather in the area of the heart. And when this fluid gathers, it's called pericardial effusion. So while hundreds of years ago, they might look at this passage and say, this doesn't mean we can't really trust this. Now we know that this actually is a medical pr process going on and this demonstrates that John is reporting the truth. He saw something, he wrote it down, not trying to figure everything out. But the other things he wrote are astounding. I cannot get my hands around prophecy. A great big awesome God who hundreds of years before this wrote down and we have fragments from when it was written down in Psalms and other areas about no bones will be broken. The psalmist says, as they looked in this messianic psalm about Jesus, looking to the future, no bones will be broken. Can we find and date those passages? Absolutely. But way back in Exodus, when they're first talking about this Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb, that is to be slaughtered for the sins of the people. Even though they slaughtered the lamb, they took an unblemished lamb, they slaughtered it, but they said, still, don't break the bones of the sacrificial lamb. Hundreds of years later, we have a picture of the sacrificial, bone, uh, sacrificial lamb with no bones broken. This is not something that Jesus could have brought about. This is not something that the disciples could have brought about. John is reporting what happened and tying it in to prophecy. And the next one, and the piercing in Zechariah 12.10, again, written hundreds of years before this happened. 
He, Zechariah writes, I will pour out on the house of David that Jesus comes from and the inhabitants of Israel a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. John's reporting these things. We found some fragments. I'll tell you a little bit about that. John writes so many details in here. If he was fabricating a story, he would say, yeah, some guys went out and this sort of happened and this is the savior of the world. No, he's writing things that can be researched, that can be known. Ancient culture didn't name people and write those specifics in there unless they were reporting history. And interesting, I don't know, 80 years ago, they found even more New Testament fragments. There's over 2,000 New Testament fragments being found. And as they find ones, we can look back and say, man, our Bible has been translated through the years because they keep finding these and comparing them. We have what is known and true. You can look that up on your own. And there's this Ryland's Papyrus number 52 that was written about 120 A.D., well, they, they said it was found in that area about that time, probably written in 90 AD. So here is John writing right after these events happened. This book of John is being disseminated. We can start to believe this John. What he wrote, we look back at how it's corroborated by other historians and say, man, I can trust this guy. What else from this passage? He uh, reports the truth. He demands a response to the truth. He said, I wrote this that you might believe. Now, believe isn't just, oh, yeah, I believe that. You know, the Bible says in the book of James that the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God and they shudder. Are demons followers of Christ? No. What John's talking about when he says believe is trust. And I've heard some stories, so I did some research last night, and I found out this guy named Charles Blondin first walked across the uh, Niagara Falls on a tightrope around 1858. Now, this guy was a character. He did this about 300 more times over his life. No safety net. Walked the first time with a big bar, walking across this tightrope uh, later on. He took a little kitchen set and he cooked breakfast out in the middle. Quite a character, I tell you. Sat down on the rope, cooked breakfast, lowered the breakfast down to the boat of something of the mist that's down in the water there. Several hundred times walking across this. At one point, he took his manager on his back and walked across. Now, there's one story, I only read it in one section, so I can't tell you it's true or not. A great story, and it gives you a picture of what John's talking about. This Charles Blondin walked across with a wheelbarrow. And he came back across, he said, do you think I could do this with a person in it? And everybody there believed he could do that. Then he said, I need a volunteer. <laughs> What's the difference between saying I believe an idea, and trust, putting your life in the hands of Charles Blondin. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not just, okay, yeah, Jesus is probably the son of God, yeah, 
No, it's engaging, it's jumping all in and saying, this is the story of reality that makes all the difference in the world. Blondin might ask, John demands a response to this truth. Now, the last part of the passage, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now there is a burial custom of the Jews. Wrap them in these spices. This was 75 pounds. This was what Nicodemus was able to gather and purchase because he was saying, this is royalty. This is what we do for our kings. This is what I'm going to do for my king. This was a big deal. Finally, last few verses. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there very careful because he's crucified as a criminal, not to be put with other criminals. But they gave him, were able to give him a decent burial. There is often a cost to truth. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, Joseph of Aramea, what did I say that right? Anyway, Joseph, Arimathea, secretly following Jesus. At this point, both of these men stepped out and said, I can't be secret any longer. I can't really believe this is the Son of God by holding back. And they both stepped out. There is a cost. They were afraid of that cost. Now they came forward. What about John who's writing this? Did he get fame? Did he get glory? What was pushing him to write? He was writing so that you and I might believe. He was writing so that you and I might tell others so that they might believe. John was through an eventual persecution by Roman Emperor Domitian. He was banished to a cold, rocky island called Patmos. And there were criminals there and he was banished there with other early Christians who were part of this strange cult group Christianity was oppressed so uh, just to see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come forward and, and many others there's a cost as I read books about uh, workers going out to other parts of the world and sharing about Jesus to Muslims when Muslims come to faith in Jesus Christ there's a great cost Often they're excommunicated from their family. We have a young lady from our church, Christine, who's over in a very Muslim country, telling people about Jesus because he is the truth. She left her family. She left the comforts of the United States to go live there. Why? Because she believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. She believes that more than this Christianity is a way of life. No, she trusts completely in Jesus Christ and says people who don't have a chance to hear 
I need to play a role in telling them. What about some of us? Do we run from the cost? When I ask for more people to go join Christine, first thing that comes up in our minds is, what about the cost? Yes, there is a cost. No, we're not foolishly going to send people to join her, but whoever we send to join, there will be a cost. And we only make that cost when we truly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now let's go back to this truth. We, we mentioned truth and truth. There's this correspondence uh, theory of truth as a correspond to a fact. But we can't always see those facts. How do we know? We can read John. We can sort of trust John and go through how do we understand if history is correct or not. And looking at the number of uh, fragments and pieces of the book of John, do they corroborate? But what about how we're nurtured, how, how we're grown up, how we perceive things? We bring a whole baggage of our own thoughts, uh, experiences we've had. How do we ever understand truth when our minds are already so muddled, not just by what we've been taught, but our own thoughts and our own experiences? Wonderful book by J. Warner Wallace. He was a detective where I grew up in Torrance, California wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. He said, in the same way I know the truth about God and Jesus Christ, I use the same tools I used as a detective. Fascinating. And one of the things he says, whether he comes to a crime scene or whether he's looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said, the question is not whether or not we have ideas, opinions, or pre-existing points of view. We do. He said, the question is whether or not we will allow these perspectives to, present, to prevent us from examining the evidence objectively. And then he walks through the process that some of us were a little familiar with, but how do they know truth in a crime scene? Well, first, there's some credible evidence. And then there's a preponderance of evidence, likely not enough to convict somebody, then there is clear and convincing evidence. And then finally, beyond a reasonable doubt. You know what? I believe Jesus was the Son of God beyond a reasonable doubt. That is the highest level of proof required by the law. Now, people have said to me, Kevin, but can you be absolutely certain? Can you prove that Jesus rose from the dead uh, with certainty? Can you prove that God exists with certainty? That's the easy one. I say, no, I can't. Can you prove your views with absolute certainty? Let's walk back through. Are there facts? Is there a re beyond a reasonable doubt for what we believe? I've been pushed to believe at times that I have to be able to prove it with absolute certainty. I don't think that's what we've talked about here. Can I move forward with confidence? Can I give my life completely to Jesus Christ with a confidence knowing I've looked at history, I've looked at this story of reality, I've looked at the scripture, and it makes sense, and I move forward with confidence. I've been married 30 years and five days. I go home every night with confidence that my wife's going to be there. Unless she's shopping or something. <laughs> shopping for food for me. Uh, we split the duties at home. She cooks the food and I eat it. But anyway, I, uh, we move forward with confidence in most areas of life. I've had friends who were married for 30 years and they came home and their spouse wasn't there. 
But in so much of life, we move forward with confidence. There's very little we can be absolute certain of. So I'm not asking for absolute certainty here. Whereas this beyond a reasonable doubt and still fits our definition of knowing. Why does this matter? Because if Jesus died on the cross fulfilling scripture, fulfilling prophecy, this is a game changer. This is the truth. It means absolutely everything. It is the story of reality. Again, September 9th. Greg Kokel is just phenomenal. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, we are to be pitied. This is not truth. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, this is just a feel-good Sunday morning thing that we are wasting our time with. If he did rise from the dead, this makes all the difference. It means that we understand God and his words are the best way to understand what is right and wrong with this world and how to live. If Christ rose from the dead, it means to believe that we give up everything, our comfort, our resources, so they might best be used for his glory and his purposes. If Jesus rose from the dead and we trust that, that means we take on a role. If we follow him and believe him, we take on a role, every one of us, as his witnesses in a broken and dying world, no matter the cost. That means we learn. Earlier, uh, Cherry gave, said there's a class starting in a couple weeks and where we can go and ask questions. Learn. Take these classes, study. There's a how to interact with your neighbor or an atheist or how to start spiritual conversations starting in September. Study these things. How do we engage people because this matters more than anything else. To believe in Jesus means we prioritize the eternal over the temporal. What did I just say? We prioritize talking about reality and Jesus over politics. I see more people get enraged about politics than they do about their neighbor going to hell, dying, and not knowing and having that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That should bother us if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Our hearts, our passion for God, this truth and relationship with him, it matters. Christianity isn't heaven insurance it's not something you try out to see how the water feels. This is truth. And it means you're all in or you're not. You don't play around with this. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for others, even if they don't know it. And it has eternal consequences. Well, as we've been reading Scripture, and we encourage you all in your own reading of Scripture uh, in your own private time, we'll go through these questions. What does this teach you about God? I sat with a, a group of people and asking them to help me through this passage and what we came up with, just phenomenal. It's hard not to get emotional when I read the first one, so bear with me here. What does this teach you about God that he was willing to send his son and debase him and have him humiliated and shamed in a painful death because he loved me, because he loved you. What?
phenomenal God that he put his son to die a criminal's death with criminals. What else do we learn? He's a God of truth. That he's a God of the past and the present, of prophecy in the future. We believe from this, this passage, we learn that God is completely trustworthy. And often we go through times in our lives where we don't understand things. And it's so easy to question, God, what's going on? And we come back to truth. We come back to his reality and say, there are many things I don't understand about you, God, and about this world, but I can know you, and I can know that you are the truth, and I can trust you. God, in this passage, we realize he understands pain, and he understands sacrifice. He alone is to be worshiped. All right, cut the tears. Kevin, what did I learn about man? Humans need the truth. Humans long for the truth, even with its implications. Oh, I learned from this passage that humans are so cruel. Breaking of the legs. I learned how easy it is for humans to separate things in their belief system. That you can be so set on having a Sabbath set aside for God and meanwhile killing an innocent man and torturing him in the process. We're okay watching a man die so I can get to my holiday. It takes God's sacrifice to reach our hard hearts. What did I learn about man? Our, our hearts are hard. It's easy to gauge in group think. Also, the guys in secret, they, they love glory from man and not from God. Does that hit any of us? There's a book I recommend often. It says when man is big and God is small because we care more about what other people think and the, the cost. What did I learn about myself? I'd much rather share about what I learned about. Or It's tough to be authentic in here. But you know what? I learned that I often am so set on understanding truth that I wield that like a sword. Like Jesus is the truth and it's not fake news and you need to know this rather than really loving people and slowly caring about them and when they're ready, sharing this truth. And you know what? I sh this one, I'm going to be sharing something, but chances are it's for you too. But for myself, I read about Jesus' humiliation and suffering on the cross went through so much that I'll never comprehend. But in my prayer life, I talk about my suffering. And maybe God doesn't really understand how much I'm going through. I've been married 30 years and my wife still isn't perfect. God, can you believe this? What you gave me, this woman. It, isn't that true? Most of the time we're praying and saying, God, you, you need to understand. I know suffering Say that to God? Man, so much to learn. Last one, what am I going to do about it? Well, you take your little sheet home, and when I said, what did I learn about myself? You write in there, what did you learn about yourself? And especially on this last one, what am I going to do about it? I hope you engage Scripture. 
Oh, it's not just a book. It's God's word filled with prophecy. And you understand this God who craves to have a relationship with you. And we can. And it's so easy to underestimate the scale of God's involvement in my life. Prophecy. So much going on. What did I learn? It took a death to cover my sins. It takes a continual death for me to follow him. And finally, I learned, don't be a fan of Jesus. Sound funny? A guy named Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan. And let me give you an example. In 2002, if I'd have been speaking here, there'd have been a lot of red, a lot of angels fans wearing your angel gear and your angel hats, and especially during October, you had all these angel fans and woohoo, that's our team. In 2017, I see a few people wearing a little tiny A over here on the side, a little embarrassed. Why? Because we're fans. We jump up and down when they're doing good, when we want to, when there's no cost to being an angels fan. And we shirk back, well, yeah, they're not doing too well. I'm not going to game. Don't be a fan of Jesus. Don't be one that says, yeah, on Sunday I'll be out here worshiping and jumping up and down. And then during the week you play a game like the Jews played a game. The Jews back then, they wanted to look good. So they made it quick to get a man that they killed off the cross so they could have their Sabbath. Don't play that game. Don't be a fan. Following Jesus means to jump all in, to believe, to jump into that wheelbarrow and say, God, I don't know what the future like, looks like, but it's all about you. And it's not about me. He wants us to believe and to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. There's so much here. There's so much in the world, in your word that you've revealed about yourself, about us. God, continue to work on our hearts. And God, may we, may we respond. May we respond in love and gratitude. Forgive us when we, we ignore the suffering, when we minimize our sins so that we might feel better about ourselves. Give us a bigger glimpse of you and a smaller glimpse of ourselves. In Jesus' precious name, amen.